Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Doug Ford has says now the green belt move that he had made was a mistake and he's going to reverse course and this is not going to happen now. There will be no building on the green belt and uh, we're sorry. Charlie Pinkerton is deputy editor of the Trillium, which uh, writes about Queens Park News. Joins me now, Charlie. How are you today? Uh, I am. Uh, how do I put it? I am a bit overwhelmed, but I'm, I'm good. It's been an interesting day. It has been an interesting day for sure. Uh, did you see this coming? Did you not see this coming? Maybe that's an unfair word. Did you think this was a possibility? Not right now. Um, I think it was a very surprising move. Uh, by the Premier today, um, largely because of how firm uh, he and the government have held on this extremely uh, controversial decision. Um, you know, it's, it's, it didn't seem like this was going to be the outcome, like I said, today, uh, but it seemed like possibly at some point down the road, depending on, uh, you know, how things continue that something the PCs and the Premier certainly care about, that this might happen. But uh, in terms of happening right now, uh, no, I did not. Is this then simply a case where they were getting together in Niagara Falls, the the caucus and and cabinet, and and is this just a time to say, look, we're not getting away from this. It's absorbing most of our time. If we're going to make this decision, let's just make it now. So there's always going to be people who are going to continue talking about this, but maybe we can try and get on with some other things and not have to spend all of our time discussing this. No, I think that's that's definitely a part of it. Um, what the premier said today was that, uh, you know, he with his caucus at this Niagara Falls getaway, um, that he had heard from lots of members of caucus, what they were hearing in their communities, the backlash over this. I definitely think the the polls factored in, like I said before, um, you know, there's been two cabinet ministers who have stepped down uh, in relation to this over the last few weeks, a chief of staff of one of those cabinet ministers, one of the premier senior staffers um, uh, as well. Uh, so, you know, it, it sort of made sense to stop the bleeding. You mentioned the polls. Um, I got to be honest, I've looked for some, haven't seen too many. Have there been polls that have been out lately about, I mean, we've seen a million about the federal race and that one is uh, taking all the oxygen. Have we seen any polls in Ontario about this that would suggest it's having an impact? Yeah, there's been two in particular. I don't want to get it get the firm wrong, but uh, it's the one that partners with the Toronto Star and I think they released polls in... Um, in mid-August and then earlier this month as well. So that would have been, uh, the earlier one would have been uh, shortly after the Auditor General report came out. Um, and then the other one would have been not long after the Integrity Commission's report. Uh, over that time versus where they were before, uh, I believe there's been uh, at least a five-point drop for the PCs in the span of, you know, these two months. Um, that is, needless to say, not good. And I, I bring up polls specifically because there was a real interesting moment uh, last week when the Premier was at a press conference when he was asked this very question about, you know, how the PCs have been hurt in the polls over this. And uh, unlike me, right away, he said, uh, uh, you know, we're still at 38, 39 percent. That's still majority government. Um, so it was just very interesting to see that he had that number on the top of his head. Uh, it is. You know, it shows that he's 
he's he's been thinking about it. Yeah, well, I, and let's be honest. I, that I, I'll give him credit for that for being honest because I don't believe honestly there is a politician on planet Earth who doesn't know that off the top of their head. They just tell you <laughs> they don't. So mm-hmm. well, we Fair maybe enough. we'll maybe we'll give him just the uh, the honesty points for uh, for that one because I mean uh, honest. I mean really, I, I don't think that anybody running at any level where there is polling done doesn't really follow it. Do you, I mean, do you think there's anyone that doesn't follow it? Uh, no, I guess uh, <laughs> we, we hope they don't, but, uh, exactly, exactly. No, no, we, you're absolutely right. We hope they don't, that it's all governance by just doing the right thing. But, uh, I don't always believe that anyway, will they be able to move on to other things? Is, is this the kind of thing that other parties and people who are not necessarily supporters of Doug Ford are going to let go, or is this going to linger forever? Yeah, well, you know, that's a a very good question. Um, We'll have uh, a much better impression come Monday. Uh, You know, that's the first time that the legislature uh, will be sitting um, in the fall session. So it's been a few months uh, since there's been a question period. Um, You know, in the uh, statements and responses that the opposition parties had to the premier's announcement, Today, uh, while they all, you know, sort of celebrated victory uh, for the reversal of the uh, Greenbelt changes, um, each of them highlighted, uh, you know, question X, Y or Z that they say is still remaining. And so I don't think they're going to um, necessarily uh, let it go um, anytime soon. Uh, But, you know, we'll see how much uh, attention it continues to get. Uh, but certainly making this move, um, you know, does take a lot of the air out of uh, the controversy because, you know, what's at the root of it um, has been reversed. Yeah, I, I've thought for a long time now, and we, we talked about this several weeks on, ago on the show, that uh, Pierre Polyev has spent the summer federally, of course, basically campaigning. And I thought, you know, if Justin Trudeau ever stepped down right before the election, boy, that confuses things a little bit for Pierre Polyev because now the person you've pointed your cannons at for so long is no longer in the mix. Does that confuse? Well, I I would say the same thing here. If now all of the attention has been put on this and this is gone, how much steam, I mean, they will definitely go after him. I don't question that for a second and they will probably score some points. I'm talking about the opposition, but does that run out of steam quicker? Because if, if Doug Ford just keeps standing up and saying, listen, we've apologized, we've said we're sorry, we're not going to do it, end of story. D- does that take the steam out of the, the wind, out of the sails? Yeah, I, I think it certainly does. Um, and, you know, you're right. The opposition parties, they have really dedicated themselves and their criticism over the last uh, month and a half um, on this issue. And so surely they're... Uh, going to have to do a lot more prep on on other issues uh, before the legislature returns. But you know the same can also be said uh, for the government. Like they have really um, been um, sort of stumbling their way through this for the last month and a half as well, um, and it's taken uh, you know a lot of their time and energy. And so uh, I, I think everyone's sort of on an even playing field here with set of what has you know dominated the Ontario politics news cycle for not only the summer, but really the better part of last year. And I would think that this also takes any wiggle room away from the government in that you can maybe have an apology and say, we made a mistake once, 
Mm-hmm. But you can't, I, I don't know that you could do this again without everybody then saying, well, like you're just making mistake after mistake and having just to backtrack. I, you, you may get away with this one time. I don't think there could be a second one. Yeah. And well, in terms of uh, this government and this premier, um, for better and for worse, it's really something that um, Doug Ford is, is known for, you know, being able to change his mind. We saw that during uh, the pandemic on certain decisions. We saw it early in his first mandate uh, as premier and a lot of the chaos of the first year year that he was in office. Um, So, you know, it's rather interesting. I think a decision like this, uh, like he said today, he apologized for breaking the promise uh, that he made in 2018 to never remove land for the green belt. I really highly doubt that uh, he'll go back on this again, uh, due to what has transpired. Um, but, you know, you raise an interesting point in, in which if there are future decisions that seem to be preferential to a lot of these same developers, uh, I think there's going to be a lot, of, a lot shorter of a leash, uh, mm. you know, in terms of uh, public opinion. Let me ask you one more thing here, which is um, mm. we, all, we often hear in politics people say politicians should listen, politicians should, you know, if it's a bad decision, they should undo it. Is Doug Ford going to get the benefit of credit for having undone a decision that is unpopular? Because I think there's going to be a lot of politicians at a lot of different levels watching this kind of as a canary in a coal mine to see, wait, does this buy us grace from people who are our opponents? Or once we backtrack, is it a sign of weakness and they're going to pounce even harder? Yeah, you know, obviously we'll have to see. Um, one probably memorable backtrack uh, by Ford was during the pandemic when, uh, you know, the government essentially announced that they were bringing back uh, carting and closing children's playgrounds. That quickly reversed itself over a weekend. And I think that, um, you know, most people forgave the government for that. And comparing that to now, again, it's a very different situation. Um, it's this scandal has played out. Uh, over the better part of a year. Um, there's been many more consequences for the government. And so in terms of all of the kind of reversals and backtracks that uh, Doug Ford has done that have been looked on, uh, you know, preferentially, um, I think that this one, uh, there is probably, in my opinion, going to be uh, the lowest amount of uh, forgiveness from those who have really been offended by it and have sort of lost trust in the party. Well, and, and we got to go, but there are also some investigations still going on, right? That's correct. The integrity commissioner still has, you know, sort of a few threads that uh, stemmed from his Greenbelt investigation. The RCMP is still, uh, you know, poking around, hasn't said it's, a, it's officially investigating yet. But uh, yeah, you know, this story is uh, long from over. That is Charlie Pinkerton. He's the deputy editor of The Trillium. We really appreciate you taking time to do this today. Busy day, I know. We appreciate you jumping in, though. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario Minor Hockey League is looking for new players, and not just any new players, although it probably would take any new players, but it is looking for players that are coming or have backgrounds that maybe are not what you would think are typical or traditional hockey players. 
they are looking for more diverse players. Possibly people who have come to this country as first or second generation Canadians who may not have grown up with hockey, may come from parts of the world where hockey isn't a thing. I want to bring in Ian Taylor. He's the executive director of the Ontario Minor Hockey Association. Joins us now. Ian, how are you tonight? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you doing this, and I'm really not surprised by this at all. I'm this seems like if we're going to keep hockey going at a reasonable pace, as far as I mean, with number of registry registrations and enrollees, there's no other option, but to look here. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, you know, to your, you know, what you said in your intro there. um, Yeah. Well, we're looking for any and all players. And what we, what we know is our communities, our demographics are changing so we've got to we've got to have different ways to to reach out to them. How though do you do this? Especially, I mean, hockey's on TV all the time, so that's one way sure. people may be introduced. But if someone comes here from, I don't know, pick whatever country that doesn't necessarily play hockey, how do you make that first inroad to try and say, hey, we want you to put on some skates and come out because they may never have been on ice before. Hundred percent, and and. Um, you know, to your point of, you know, they'll see it on TV. I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll separate ourselves from the pro game and, and we're youth sport, but, but, you know, again, how do we, how do we get in front of these people? So w- <clears throat> right now we've launched a, a campaign, a registration campaign um, to introduce our sport to, um, uh, to really to anyone who's, who, who isn't involved with the game, but we're doing that. Um, through a campaign called Hockey is Fun. Um, social media is a big part of that. And and we're also doing it in different languages. We've decided mm-hmm. to do it in, in both Mandarin and Punjabi as well uh, as a starting point and, and to see if we do make any inroads by um, inviting and, and, and um, uh, you know, opening a door for people to say, hey, this is, this is a, um, one, this is a sport, you know, it allows your kids to be active and engaged and, and, and um, socialize, um, team sports, which, which the, the benefits of, of working together, but why hockey? So, so our, our, our kind of, our call to action is, well, cause it's a heck of a lot of fun mm. try it. And, 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 um, and what we find, and I'm sure, I'm sure all your listeners will appreciate uh, with kids if, if they're, if their kids participate in something and they have a great time, they tend to come back. That, that's if true. They, that's if true. If they don't, if they don't, they'll find something else. And that's the other thing, Scott. There's there's no shortage of stuff to do. Um, it's a competitive marketplace like never before. So um, that's why we're having to um, um, promote our sport pr- like we never have before as well. I'll tell you a story that a number of years ago, there was a guy, uh, a journalist who came from Africa. He was visiting Canada for some event. I can't remember what it was. And I took him to an AHL game. It was when the Hamilton Bulldogs were in the AHL. He had seen hockey on TV, but when he saw it in person, it was an entirely different experience. So it's not just the challenge you have, I think, is not just getting someone to eyeball it on TV because that's fine. Yeah. But you almost have to somehow get them into the rink to experience it. How do you do that? Um, the, you know what? It's a it's a great it's a great point, and and that's kind of how we came to this. I, I mean, after COVID, you, you know, we 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 had our, our first registration campaign, and that was 
that was everything about coming back stronger and back to normal and, and all the things we talked about that we missed, you know, during COVID. This, this became a lot more, um, uh, almost sitting down at, at around a, a, a table and saying, you know, you know, why do we love it? Like, why are we involved? Why do we coach? Why do we, why do we play? Why do I still play? And it was, and, and so we just got it down to this point. Well, I, I love being on the ice. I love the sound of the, you know, puck hitting the, the, the boards or the post or the, you know, um, the smells it, it's so, so you're right. It, it has to be a sensory, you know, you have to be kind of smell it, touch it, feel it. And, and so, so to do that, we've got to make the entry easier. And, and that, that can involve a few things that can involve um, try hockey programs. So something where you're not making a full, uh, you, you know, hockey season is long in this country. Uh, it, it can be a 20 week, 24 week um, commitment. Um, so, so um, try hockey programs that might be a six week um, mm. uh, length or, or, or that sort of thing. Um, um, ability to get equipment. Um, well, let me jump uh, in there for a second, Ian, because that, yeah. that to me, that was going to be the other thing. We got limited yeah. time here, but yeah, my yeah. goodness, I, it would seem to me that even leaving aside um, cultural barriers that may or may not exist, these days, sure. the number one thing I would think that would keep people from playing hockey, getting their kids into hockey, is it's bloody expensive. Even if you can get equipment, signing up, getting ice time, it is bloody expensive. How do you overcome that? That's, you're bang on. I mean, it's and and it's it's a it's a time commitment and it's a financial commitment, right? So so that's that's the idea of having try programs, try try it out, and and being able to have a shorter time frame, but also being able to have access to um, to equipment that that again almost like a, a loaner set that you can use to to try the sport. And we're we're, we're seeing that with both programs. Um, there's a great program called First Shift. It's a six-week program, has equipment. We're also doing, um, um, we, we call it our OMHA assist program. So we have goalie assist and player assist. And the, the whole idea is, is equipment packages so you don't have to make that financial commitment just to see if your kid mm. likes it. Now, once they like it, we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what comes next. But, but that dipping your toe in and having to make a big, you know, a big payout out of your wallet that's that's a concern for sure. Yeah, and, and like I've always thought that it always was interesting to me that in school, when you sign up for school band at the beginning, they never make you go out and buy a tuba in order to play. They give you a tuba so you can try it and find out if you like it. And then if you really love it, maybe you go out and buy one. But you don't have to put the expense up front. Hockey has done this backwards, it seems, that you have to put the huge expense in and then may find out that you hate it, honestly, but you, then you're stuck and you kind of have to keep going. It's, sure. a, it's, a, it's an interesting situation and an interesting, it's a great uh, analogy. An interesting yeah. strategy. Uh, Ontario Minor Hockey Association, go to their website. Um, as I say, the new program is out uh, in Punjabi and Mandarin and uh, trying to get new people to come in. Uh, Ian Taylor, the Executive Director of Ontario Minor Hockey Association. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, or I guess late last week now, uh, you probably heard that there were a bunch of layoffs in the Canadian media sector, uh, a whole lot of layoffs, in fact, 600 people, not all journalists, but a lot of them, um, at Metroland. Now, full disclosure, I work for Metroland as well as part of the Hamilton Spectator. I'm not laid off. Uh, I'm thankful for that. But this is a lot of cuts in the weekly newspapers, especially newspapers that touch a lot of communities that... uh, that really rely on 
weekly newspapers, these kinds of things to get their news. There's all kinds of reasons for this. I don't pretend to be versed enough or expert enough to go into all the finances of everything. Perhaps my next guest is, but there is certainly a lot of people, including him, saying this has a potential for a real impact on not just local news, but on democracy. Uh, Peter Menzies is a national newspaper award-winning journalist. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. He is past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, and he's a former vice chair of the CRTC. He joins me now. Peter, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on your show. This is, uh, I got to tell you, um, as someone, as I said off the top, who works in here uh, in this business and in this company, uh, Friday was a brutal, bleak, difficult day. But I got to believe that I'm looking at it from one perspective, but if you live in one of these communities where these papers are going away, it's a whole different kind of bru uh, brutal and bleak. Yeah, I guess it depends on each community would probably be a little bit, a diff bit different. Um, so it is brutal and bleak for the old newspaper business. There's no question about that. I mean, these these cuts to which you're referencing, there have been thousands and thousands of them in the previous 15 years. So this is, uh, uh, they don't usually come in, in, a, in a bunch this big, but uh, yeah, it's a sad day for everybody there. And hopefully we can move forward and find more sustainable platforms for journalism because the age of print, I think most people have acknowledged for at least a good 10 years uh, is coming generally to an end. There may be a few products left, but it's the digital age. Some of those towns may have you know, radio stations that have news websites that are that are giving people news with their demand rather than waiting for the top of the hour. I don't know the specifics, but there there are signs for hope too. Although it's it's probably a good week for mourning as well. Mm. Peter, one of the things, and and I want to get into a bunch of things about this, but one of the things that I have struggled to understand about this all along is that we hear people all the time say journalism, whether it's papers, radio, TV, whatever, journalism is vitally important. Journalism is essential. We have to keep people honest. We have to have this stuff. And then so many people, if you say, well, then are you willing to pay something for it? They say, no, it should be free. I should be able to access this for free. I don't see this in other segments of society. I don't see people walk up to a movie theater and say, I should be able to go in and watch Barbie for free. I'm I'm curious. What's your take on why it, there is a belief that journalism, that news, should be accessible to everybody with no cost? Well, I think the industry trained them that way, and uh, the, there's a generation now or two. The internet is now a, a generation or two deep, at least at least a generation and a half deep, in terms of that. And very early on, newspapers, which had never given away their many hadn't given away their news for free. Um, you know, you used to have to subscribe to, you know, the, well, you still do the Toronto Star, but, you know, a lot of the local dailies, you know, Regina Leader Post, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Halifax Chronicle Herald, you could only get it if you paid for a subscription. It was, you know, one of the things about being a grown up when you first moved out of your parents' house, you got, you got your cable, you paid your rent, you got your cable subscription and you subscribed to the newspaper. Um, but then when the internet came along, I think a lot of publishers made the huge mistake of just giving it away for free on the internet because, you know, it's, that's, this is Monday morning quarterbacking of the worst kind. But 
you know, what were they to do? Everything else was being given away for free that they used to do. Their classified ads were suddenly being given away for free. All of a sudden, everything on the internet seemed free. So they probably thought that was the only way they could compete and could compete and build audiences and get advertising. But it was a mistake. Uh, Philip Crawley, who just retired after a very distinguished career as publisher of the Globe and Mail, uh, I think cited that as his one regret that he hadn't moved to a paywall earlier. So I think people are going to have to be retrained differently. Um, but there's a lot of product out there now that's available online from broadcasters, the CBC, CTV, radio stations such as yourselves that have websites where people can still access news for free. But if news has value to people, then they should be willing to pay at least a nominal sum for it. And that seems to be the path to survival. And yet, these days. and yet, and your point is well taken. And I think you're bang on on that one, but we watched, well, if you were a kid, for example, you watched television for free. Your parents may have paid for cable, but you watched for free. But when you move out, you are willing to pay Netflix or Disney plus or whatever for a streaming service. A lot of people would be willing to pay for satellite radio. There are things that have been traditionally free to people that they then say, oh, but I'm okay to pay for that. This has been the one that just has had a hard time clicking. And again, I I think your points are well taken, but I've not understood why this is the one that has never been able to catch. Well, I don't think people have tried hard enough. I mean, that's I, I don't see a lot of evidence that people are have launched advertising campaigns that say why you should subscribe. Um, they've People have done a lot of things. There's the C-18 folly that said, you know, news has value. News has all this value. Somebody has to pay for it. So let's get Facebook to pay for it. Facebook says, ah, forget it. Um, and then what do you do, right? We need to have some kind, we need to have a very frank grown-up discussion about the future of news in this country. And we need to have, my view is we need to have a national news policy that would be multifaceted with a number of things. Like you got to fix the CBC situation that's not making any sense where the government's subsidizing a commercial competitor to everybody um you, you know you can still have the cbc but not everybody wants that anymore but you know you don't have to get rid of it you just need to fix that relationship you need to bring in things like uh make your make your subscription that you pay for news make it tax deductible i mean if it's a public good if it's truly a public good why doesn't the government make my globe and mail subscription um fully tax deductible the globe and mail itself has suggested 70 percent. i'd go for why not the 100 mm. right so incent the behaviors and actually you know start a campaign of some kind the government could do it itself encouraging people to do this because it doesn't have to be a lot you can pay you know the guardian for instance i was in britain i was on their website today and they they kind of come right out and say, hey, we know not everybody has the money, but if you want, you're in Canada, you can get a subscription for as little as $2 a month, right? So, or volunteer or donate. There's uh, there's other models that people mm -hmm. are looking at, like making your newspaper into a uh, not-for-profit institution so people can make tax-deductible donations, and that gives you access. So we need to be creative, and we need to be thoughtful, and... Uh, um, and we need to educate the public. How much of an impact do you believe, um, you know, everything today is political. Everything is divisive. Everyone is into their camps with their heels dug in on whatever side of the aisle and whatever issue it is that they believe in. 
Um, some people may take issue with what I'm going to say right now, but newspapers traditionally, they may have a political slant, but usually it is an attempt to be somewhat centrist, not always, not all the columns. How much has it impacted newspapers, do you believe, that people now seem to look for blogs, for websites, for views that reflect their view and aren't so interested in hearing the other side? Yeah, and algorithms play a role in that too, right? So you start getting fed information that uh, is aligned with your pre- preconceived views, and that's one of the, that's. I think that's always been one of the dangers. Of the uh, when I was in the newspaper business, and I was an editorial page editor for a while, and one of the things you realized very early on was that everything read better in contrast. So you know, like have an issue and have two contrasting points of view, lay out the arguments on your page. And then people really liked that because they could hear all sides of the argument and they could make up their own mind in terms of that. But once you get to single uh, issue, yeah, it kind of, you know, that's a short term project. You need to have something that contrasts with your general view. So if you want to be, you know, a, a, a publication that's more to the left, like the Toronto Star or one that's more to the right, like the National Post, you can do that. But I think you'd be wise to mix it up a little bit. And then the problem comes with the niche products where you get almost exclusively conservative points of view on a certain site and another one where you get almost exclusively left-wing points of view. And I don't think that's good at all because you we need to be open to the idea that you will encounter something. That's what you used to be able to do with newspapers by accident. Or if you turn on the, the, the you know one radio show, um, the afternoon guys may be a bit of a lefty, the morning guys may be a bit of a righty, who knows. Right, but you get exposed to something that challenges your preconceived notion, and unless you're exposing yourself to things that challenge your preconceived notions, you're never going to grow. You're just going to entrench, and people just fight from inside those trenches. And I think entrench is a great word because I think the point is that once you get comfortable in that setting, I really believe this. Once you get comfortable only being fed the kind of things that you want to hear. When you are then exposed to something you don't, it's it's not as pleasurable, it's not as interesting, it's not as fun, it's challenging, and you don't necessarily want to hear it. You may be, I'll use a word, the the word of everyone today, you may be offended by the other side, which in newspaper world, once upon a time, I think the whole point was to offend you once in a while to make you think. Yeah, it was. It was, it was, it, 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 the purpose was to make you think, right? And I think that's, that's what you're talking about is one of the, one of the dangers right now, when people encounter a view which they're unfamiliar with, they react in a very negative fashion. And some of that is because they're not equipped to have the argument, right? So it, it, it when you get confused, you get angry. When you get when you get scared, right? And and a, a point of view that you you don't know what to do with will probably frighten you. Not in a you know hand, you know you're you're not going to break down in tremors and or anything like that. But it frightens you. And when people get frightened, they get angry. So, you know, you see that on social media all the time. And that's one of the reasons why Facebook is kind of happy to not have news, because it's a happier place where people aren't fighting over news, right? I I think it is, for sure. So, okay, so we get all these these local newspapers. And as you say, this is not new. This is not the first. I mean, this has been happening all over North America, all over the world for a while now. It's hitting home here. When they go away, you can say, well, there still is the star, the post, the globe, the sun, the spec, the whatever, the Brantford Expositor, the St. Catherine Standard, go down the list. 
what difference does it make then that these smaller local papers are gone away other than the fact that people lose their jobs and nobody wants to see that? What, what's, what's the cost? Well, in some cases, like with, with, and I can't speak specifically to the, to the, these Metro papers, but I mean, there are instances, there are, there are currently weekly on, you know, what used to be weekly newspapers out West, uh, some post media, some post media products serving small towns that went, you know, online only. And they like have one story posted a month to them or a week to them, right? The top. So, I mean, Jen Gerson, uh, calls them zombie newspapers that you know they're finally closing but they've been dead for a few years because they've been so badly understaffed somehow you know you know like they say a forest has to burn to get new growth from time to time right Um, some of that clutter will i think inevitably have to be cleared out in order to create the space and there have been you know 240 or so you know new online products launched plus there have been you know, 700 and some, there's 700 and some commercial radio stations in Canada, almost every one of which has a website now, right, to capture online revenue, but also, you know, you can live stream, um, you know, the programming through there, but also it, it is actually like an online newspaper, right, where you have in the, all kinds of different things and, um, and, and the news that your news guys do is actually there in a sort of what you would call a print version. So, some of those are still there. The extent to which, you know, in some of those smaller places, that small radio station, which maybe has one and a half reporters, um, can get out and cover school board again, because none of these guys have been covering school boards for years. Mm. Um, I don't know how that will happen other than through creating space for new business models like Village Media has some is, is an often cited example where people go in and they actually invest and they put four or five reporters into one of these smaller centers. They, you know, they, they engage with the community and they start rebuilding the build, rebuilding trust and audiences. Cause as long as you have an internet connection now, you know, you have access to news. We got to run, but I think I really believe there's a whole lot of reasons why I think this is a loss, but with newspapers always for me, and again, I, I full disclosure, I work for one. So I, I, you know, I, I obviously believe in them. I think the one thing you get in newspapers, you don't get when you're scouring the internet for stuff is you generally go to the internet and Google something that you are setting out to find. And yep. with newspapers, one of the beauties I've always thought is you open up the page and you may read something you had no idea you might be interested in or might learn something about because you never in a million years would have set out to look for this. And when you're done that article, you go, oh, well, I'm kind of glad I read that because I never would have otherwise. That, I think, is one of the big things we're going to lose. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I found that from time to time. I I had got to the point where it had been a long time since I'd read a print newspaper and I it, it would just be on an airplane. Um, and I found, you know, I realized that a few years ago, I was picking up the newspaper and I'm reading it and I go, oh, there was a presidential election in Honduras. <laughs> like, um, Probably I'm not looking that up that. by yourself. I'm not going to look that up by myself, like Central American presidential elections, but I am a better informed citizen and better equipped to be, you know, conduct my citizenship in a positive fashion because I learned that and I learned it by, by accident. And I, I couldn't agree with you more um, when we get fed things through our Google searches and that sort of stuff. I think that's a massive issue going forward and the ability to to suddenly just learn something that, the, you know, 
by mistake. By surprise, or, absolutely. By, yeah. by, by, by casual encounter like that. I think that is a huge loss. It is. Uh, the whole thing is unfortunately a huge loss, but it is, uh, it's 2023. And I guess this is one of the realities of uh, where we are today, but uh, it doesn't mean it's any less painful. Uh, Peter Menzies, National Newspaper Award-winning journalist, senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute and past editor-in-chief at the Calgary Herald. Really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. I really appreciate your interest and uh, have a great day. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.